Have you noticed that the national dialogue seems to be more polarized today than ever? Now, some of you have lived long enough to say, well, I can remember some times, but I'm not talking to too many people today who feel like the, the kinds of conversations that happen in the political realm primarily uh, are, are softer and gentler uh, than ever. As a matter of fact, some and many of you like I can, can hardly even handle watching news these days, regardless of whether you're conservative or progressive or liberal or whatever your party persuasion is. It just seems like there is this hostility. And rarely do we have debates and discussions without both sides, both sides raising the volume and attacking the other side for their outrageous extremism, right? I mean, rarely do we acknowledge that people on the other side of the, the aisle have a reasonable perspective on at least a few points. We, we cast them as the, the, the enemy, the extremists. And we seem to have lost the capacity to have civil discussions and productive debates. And it often seems more like this than this. Some of you actually on holidays feel a little heightened tension because at the family gatherings, you know, there's that uncle, that crazy uncle that everybody's like, is he coming this week? Because if he is, I don't know if I am. And you'd like for your Memorial Day picnic to look something like that. Facing each other, good food, pleasant conversation. Yeah, and, you know, until Uncle Fester decides to lay it out there again. But you know, what if there's a better way and I mean a better way than even just polite conversation around a table. A way that certainly eliminates the angry shouting and quarreling that characterizes so much of our national conversation today. But a way that even carries us beyond the polite conversation. The first two Sundays of May, we spent time in Romans 12, noting some of what it means to be members one of another. And this is part of the larger study of loving one another as Jesus has commanded us. God is calling us to be people who don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Remember that from Romans 12? Paul said, but think soberly. That is, think realistically. And part of that realistic assessment of who we are individually and who we are as an assembly is that we value one another because God has gifted each member in a unique way. So there's value in a setting like this. And then last week, we spent time in Romans 15 studying the amazing love of Christ that moved him to adapt to us. Remember that passage from Romans 15 where it speaks of Jesus not pleasing himself? And we recognize that in the context, it's not even speaking of Jesus pleasing the Father, although that would be a true statement. He did always please the Father by doing his will. But this use of please has to do with Jesus adapting himself to the weakness of the people that he came to reach. And it was not just a matter of, you know, educational or economic or political weakness. It was actually weakness of a sin nature where he's adapting himself to, to people who are hurling insults at God. And Paul quotes that passage from the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, as, as Jesus the Messiah speaks to his Father, the reproaches that fell on you have fallen on me. It's an amazing demonstration of that kind of loving adaption. And so, as I noted last week, he not only took on human flesh, but specifically he became a Jewish boy, then grew to Jewish adulthood, and that meant submitting himself to the religious and ceremonial laws that he had actually given to Moses 1,500 years before on Mount Sinai. Yeah, it's the same Jesus. And he took upon himself 
the insults of those who insulted God in order that he might demonstrate three things we saw in the passage last week, the truthfulness of God, that he might fulfill the promises given to the patriarchs and ultimately bring not just the Jews into a right relationship with with God the Father, but through his sacrifice, bring Gentiles into a right relationship. And I, for one, am glad because I don't think there's a drop of Jewish blood in my DNA. Christ's redemptive work of welcoming us as Romans 15 says, is the pinnacle expression of that love. And remember, we even, we even grabbed a passage from Romans 5, while we were still weak, weak in our sins, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now let's carry all of that into chapter 14 today. So if you have not yet opened your Bibles to Romans, do so now. Go to chapter 14, and in particular, if you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the, in the book rack in front of you, you'll find Romans 14 on page 948. And I would encourage you to follow along. So whether you brought your own copy of the Scriptures or you want to borrow one of ours, and by the way, let me say, if you do not have a copy of the Bible We would love for you to take this copy, just take it right out of the rack, use it this morning through the service, and then carry it home with you. We have more. We'll replace them. And we've purchased them to be used, okay? They're not decorations around here that just kind of make it look churchy. This is the living word of God, and every one of you needs a copy of it. All right, so page 948, and I just want to read the first uh, four verses, and you can look at the scripture in your lap, or you can look at what's printed on the screen. Uh, But this is just a portion And it gets us into the text. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is better, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, skip over to chapter 15 with me, and I want to make sure you see these two commands. They're like bookends around this entire passage, but in verse 7, Romans 15, 7, we read, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that's the context. The command to welcome one another is the next particular installment of what it means to love one another. Now, there's a serious problem in the church, and I touched on this some last week, but by way of review, uh, Paul is, is addressing some issues that have arisen in one congregation, like one assembly just like this, where there are people with very different opinions, and they've begun to quarrel over those opinions. And that quarreling has the idea of not just like, you're right, I'm wrong, but actually, if you do a little research into this this terminology that Paul is using, you would find it means to scrutinize the thoughts of another with a view of pronouncing judgment on their opinion. So so we're not in a friendly debate. We're not in a quest for truth. These two different parties in the Church of Rome have basically staked out their positions and their opinions, and they're trying to demonstrate that the other people are absolutely wrong, and so it's a pretty ugly quarrel. And if that even makes you nervous to think about this, and, and, and some of you feel like, how could that happen in a church? Well, it happens because we're people. It's the kind of debate that never actually accomplishes anything other than letting two parties voice their proud thoughts. 
It's a debate that is not about finding truth, but about finding the weakness in your opponent so that you can exploit it, either by your words or your actions. It's ugly. So there are quarrels over opinions, though. That's the second thing to keep in mind. These are opinions. It's not crystal clear truth that God has said, you know, don't do this, but do that. So there's not really a right or a wrong that's in view right here, although Paul will make some statements to demonstrate who the more mature ones are. But that's not ultimately what he wants to get after. Here's a second thought for you. They're not only quarreling over opinions, but there are attitudes that are sinful. Along with those strongly held opinions, held from a position of pride, not humility and love, attitudes begin to develop that are clearly sinful. Look at verse 3 with me again. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Despising and passing judgment are clearly outside of the boundaries of God's law of love. Now again, for the sake of those of some of you who are like, I, have, I, I don't even know what this quarrel is about, and this is really weird. Some who eat, some who eat vegetables only. Is this a vegan meat eaters kind of thing? It has a little different connotation. So let me just interject a word of explanation. It's actually supercharged with spiritual significance because some at Rome, as in Corinth, if you want to read that letter at some other point, uh, were eating meat that apparently had been offered to idols. And because of the spiritual significance attached to that food, there were other people in, in the church going, how can you eat that stuff? It came straight out of the idol worship. And, and they kind of have a point. Although Paul's going to make some bigger points. But, so it's not just a matter of what's healthiest. You know, it's not organic versus whatever else we would you know, put on our table. It's not that discussion that our culture is having. It's a spiritually supercharged discussion, which food actually honors God or potentially dishonors God. Now look again with me. It is the strong who despise the weak brother who abstains. And that term despise is really pretty ugly. It means to treat with scorn and to disdain on the basis of a judgment that this person is actually worth less, spiritually speaking. And you can kind of understand how they get there, can't you? Well, it's like, why don't they grow up? Why don't they actually read the whole Bible and believe the words of Jesus? Because Paul will actually make this uh, point in this larger argument uh, that Jesus actually declared all foods to be clean. So they actually can make a case straight out of the Bible that eating this meat is not a dishonorable, let alone sinful act. But you know, in their spiritual knowledge, their pride is taking control, and now it's creating the sinful attitude of disdain. And Paul inserts this little word, despise the the one who abstains. Uh, Let me find it here. As we continue down through this passage, he uses the term, Brother. Brother. And it's a reminder to us that these people actually share an identity that's based in their, in their spiritual origin. They're both children of God. How does this kind of despising reflect the grace of God that we have received? And the answer is, it doesn't. It's not a reflection of grace that we've received or experienced. It's actually a reflection of our pride. Let's look at the second sinful attitude. The weak pass judgment on the servants of God. And these are ones that God has welcomed. I'm wrapping some things up together here. Now, again, that term pass judgment is pretty ugly. 
Sometimes it's used in the Bible in a really good way. We're to be people who actually discriminate between good and evil. But that's not the kind of judging that's in view here. Paul uses this term to describe uh, a different kind of judgment, indicating that one individual is sitting in condemnation over another brother. And so it has the idea of forming or an expressing an unfavorable opinion about the spirituality of that individual. And it's interesting that the weak ones are doing this to the strong ones. They're looking at their meat eating and, and not considering the full counsel of God, even the words of Christ that said, all, all foods are clean. Um, it, it actually would be okay to eat the meat, but they're assigning a lack of spirituality or perhaps even assigning motives to these individuals as if they don't care about honoring God. They're not living for the glory of God. But Paul interjects this little phrase, God has welcomed them why, as if to say, why can't you? God receives them even though they practice something different than you. And then he goes on to say, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Again, it's a term of relationship. So he stepped away from the term brother, which is legitimate, and now he uses the term servant. And whose servant is this? Well, it's God's. And it's actually a term, if you trace this out, that has reference to a household servant. And often these were servants who had a very close relationship with the one that they were serving. And I think that's exactly part of Paul's point here. He's saying, who are you to judge the household servant of God Almighty? You know, when we're in the process of judging someone else in a sinful way, we're not thinking, are we, that that person really belongs to God. We've positioned ourselves as a little God, as if we know enough uh, of the facts to make a right assessment and you know, have good enough spiritual wisdom to bring that to bear upon this, and we kind of put ourselves in the place of God. But we're not God. And again, it's important to remember, we're not talking about categories of sin and unrighteousness and holiness and righteousness. We're talking about categories that the Lord himself has set up that he calls opinions. Well, it's not only that there are quarrels over these opinions and attitudes that are sinful, but there's a third thing to see here, and that is the effects that are destructive to the body of Christ. Look at verse 15. We haven't read this far yet, but if you continue to read through this passage, you find that Paul says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Grieved. That is, he's actually afflicted with sorrow. There's a spiritual offense that is given. A second thing that happens, also mentioned in verse 15, is there's destruction. Uh, These believers were actually acting in a way that was destroying a brother. And that's leading them to a personal ruin. And, And it's not of an economic or emotional ruin. It actually has to do with spiritual destruction. It's a very serious thing that is happening. And this type of destruction is closely related to the next characteristic. This is found in verse 21, and it causes his brother to stumble. And that's why I grabbed this little picture of a little toddler. I mean, we might look at that, and and some of you live this every single day. And you're in a perfect position to understand this. And the rest of you just need to pay attention to toddlers. They're all over this building. For your own safety, pay attention to them. But spiritually speaking, pay attention to them. Because what Paul is saying is that some of you are living in such a way that you're not only grieving a a brother 
in Jesus, one that you, you share the same spiritual origin. You, you both were birthed out of the grace and saving love of God himself. So you're, you're grieving one another by what you do. You're actually making choices that lead to the spiritual destruction and overthrow of that brother in Christ. And actually, some of you are putting stumbling blocks in front of these toddlers because they're weak. Causes to stumble is the phrase. Now, let's talk for just a moment um, about a stumbling block. Is that my next slide? Chad, no? Okay. Let me back up here. I know I have that in here. Causes to stumble. Oh, I know. We'll, we'll get to that. It's coming. What Paul has in mind is not the hurt that one might experience of just seeing another brother or sister in Christ do something such as eating meat because that's one of the issues that's here or another issue that he talks about is some esteem particular days on the calendar as really sacred and holy days and other people just look at the calendar and say, you know, all 365 days are sacred because God is over them all. But they're actually, they're actually living in a way that it brings pressure on the weak ones to participate when they're not ready to participate. That's what's in view. And you know, we're mindful when we have little ones either in our house or under our care that there may be some things that they even want to do, but they're not ready for it because physically they haven't developed, right? Here's a little guy trying to play the game of soccer that he's probably watched a lot of other people play, but he's not developed to the point where he can play it with great skill. And you know what? Here he is taking a fall, he's stumbling. Paul says these are the effects of your pride as you fail to love one another in a Christ-like fashion. Go back to verse 15 because this really is the damning sentence, if you will. You are no longer walking in love. And for the people at Rome, there were some for whom the exercise of their personal freedom had become more important to them than adapting to the culture that God was calling them to serve. It may have been the culture of, of family members, but certainly even in this context, and we don't have the time we really need to develop this, but even of guarding the conscience of a weaker brother. Quarreling, despising, judging, grieving, destroying, causing others to stumble is the mark not of love, but of self-centered living. And this is not what our Lord desires for us. Now the question is, how does God intend to glorify himself through his people? And even though his people disagree on matters of conscience. Because remember, we're not, it's not in the realm of, oh, you prefer to shop at you know, Smiths, and we prefer Harmons, or you prefer to drive a Ford, or we're Chevy people, which today's a big race day. Some of you weren't aware of that. Some of you are like, I know, can you hustle up? <laughs> Should have hit the record button. So we're not talking about is, you know, Ford or Chevy, or, you know, even if you're an IndyCar or NASCAR or Formula One. A lot of things that create division, but we're talking about disagreement on matters that are really important to the individuals because 
they're all seeking to honor God. And the solution is not settling the argument to say, the strong members of the church are right, so you weak ones just need to grow up and get with the program. No, what God's solution is, is love, the exercise of love. Now, a particular way, it's not just the kind of warm, general, hey, we just love each other. Uh, can we all just get along? Um, he's actually going to show us how we can move beyond that to a really powerful, powerful experience of love. God's command is that we welcome one another. So go back to the beginning of the chapter. We're going to note a few things as we roll through this. And the solution of love, of, first of all, begins with our individual submission to the Lordship of Christ. So what does love in submission look like? Well, in the middle of, of this chapter, verses 7 through 9, Paul makes a statement, we are the Lord's. We sang of the Lordship of Christ earlier in the service. It's good for every one of us to remember. We don't own ourselves you don't have sovereignty over your life. You really don't even have personal autonomy, independence. Although most of us as Westerners, we love our independence, right? We have flags. Some of, them, some of you probably have them hanging in your home that says, don't tread on me. I mean, our nation was born out of a strong belief in personal independence, right? Yeah, but that has its limits. And your independence only goes as far as God's lordship extends. So we are the Lord's. A second thought, love and submission also looks like doing everything to honor the Lord. Uh, we honor the Lord in all of our practices. And if you look at verse six with me, you'll notice that Paul wa wants to frame out this quarreling and kind of show it as silly in one sense, if not ungodly and, and counterproductive as it also is. But he, he notes in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. He's pointing out that though there are two different opinions as to what, uh, uh, as to what loving God and serving him looks like, and somebody says, I'm going to honor the Lord in these days, and somebody else says, I'm going to honor the Lord in all days. They're both honoring the Lord, which is a good thing. They're living to show respect. So both groups are practicing their opinions, and that is actually a good thing. Love in submission acknowledges the lordship of Christ and says all of life is lived for him in his presence and lived to honor him. But it's not just love in submission. What Paul has in view is love in relationship. So love welcomes those <clears throat> with different opinions. Now let me remind you again that when we're talking about welcoming, uh, we're talking about receiving people. So even our our morning greetings here as we come in are, are a reflection of that. Not perfect, uh, but we say to one another, how are you? Good to see you. We missed you last week or whatever. I mean, there are all kinds of expressions that come out verbally. There are also physical expressions of that, aren't, that, aren't there? Some of you are huggers. Some of you are like, hey, personal space. You, know, just, you need to stay back. Some of you like some of the vehicles that we see out on the highways would do well. There's a wear sign that says stay back five feet at all times. Don't get any closer. Um, but we express that openness toward one another, don't we? Yeah, that's part of what Paul has in mind. There is this receiving of one another into your heart, into that circle of fellowship. We treat one another with kindness. This is all part of it. And Paul says specifically, you who are strong have a responsibility to welcome the one who is weak in faith. Why? Because we're members one of another, going back. So love welcomes those with different opinions. We should expect different opinions here. We're never going to 
find agreement on all of the issues of life. And we'll even get to something in a little while that I think makes it really beautiful to say there's, if God makes room for different opinions, then not only can we, we should. Here's a second thought for you. So love welcomes those with different opinions. Love clears the path for others. Now here's where it gets even more personal and I think special because we live in a world that makes a big deal about tolerance, right? And it's kind of like, well, you're entitled to your opinion. Of course, I'm entitled to mine and we're probably never going to agree and I can you know, yell at you or criticize you or blog about you or whatever it might be. And I don't, I don't actually have to live in a way uh, that makes your life easier. I just tolerate you. But God says to his people, you know what? Love actually begins to clear the path for others. Look at verse 13. So in correcting that sinful attitude of passing judgment on other people, he says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is where my mind was going just a few minutes ago. Do you see the, the counterpoint? Let me, let me cast it in these terms. This is what repenting of a sinful attitude like passing judgment looks like. It's not just that you stop passing judgment on other people, but you actually get busy living your life in a way that clears those obstacles out of the path of their Christian faith. That's a big difference, isn't it? It's neat how all through the New Testament, there's that contrast of, so stop doing this and start doing this. One of those would be in Ephesians 4 where Paul says, I'm going give you an example of what real repentance looks like. Paul says, let him that stole no longer steal. So stop taking people's money. So what does active faith look like in that case? Well, let, let the one who stole no longer steal, but rather let him work with his hands in order that he may have something to give to the one who has a need. So how do you know when a thief is really under the power of the gospel and repenting and believing in Jesus? Well, he stopped taking other people's stuff, but now he's actually gainfully employed and he's given things away. That's the mark of grace. How do we know when the grace of God has really begun to lay hold of our hearts? Well, we, we stop judge, passing judgment on other people or despising them because they don't practice their faith the way, the way we do, and we begin to look for opportunities to serve and clear the path so there are no stumbling blocks for them. Now, what is a stumbling block, as Paul uses that term? Well, spiritually speaking, it's an occasion of sinning, an occasion or reason for taking offense. It's something that you do or say that really kind of lays down this obstacle in front of the other person that hinders them in their walk of faith. It'd be similar to neglecting to clear a nursery floor of those things which could lead to the fall or harm of toddlers. Anybody want to guess whose home this is? No, I'm just kidding. Some of you moms are like horrified, like, did, did my husband send a picture of that? No. This is nobody's home here, because we all got up early enough to clean our houses this morning, and they're in perfect order. No, every home that has little ones reaches this point, but the adults are the ones who come in and clear the floor, in part, not just because it's messy, in part because little ones will continue to walk through there and they'll fall and really injure themselves. And some of you have identified like six or seven serious hazards on that floor right now. Like, oh, that open container, my little one would fall right in there. We'd lose them forever. But you know, spiritually speaking, we can put obstacles in front of one another that actually cause them to sin. 
And it may be that God has given you an understanding of his word where you can practice some things similar to what we are encountering here in the scripture. And in faith, you can participate with great joy. You honor the Lord. He knows you're honoring him. He knows it's tied to your understanding of the scriptures. But there's somebody else uh, either in your family or in this church right now that's not at that point. They're toddlers. And we call them toddlers because they're unstable, right? They toddle. And they need extra care. In love, we adapt to them. Going back to last week, that term pleasing one another. And it doesn't mean we're just like, oh, don't upset the toddler. We don't want another temper tantrum. No, it's not that kind of pleasing. But it's, it's what every good parent does. It's like, man, my whole world is now adapted to these little ones. To training, to equipping, to growing, to strengthening, to blessing. We adapt to them. You know, weakness shows itself in different forms. Spiritual weakness. Some are weak because they are poorly nourished in the word. They just haven't had the opportunity or maybe they've neglected it. The only thing that they get is what a preacher or a teacher tells them. Nobody's ever shown them how to read the word for themselves. And so even a devotional life is either non-existent or it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. They're like the little ones who haven't yet figured out how to use a fork. It's an exciting thing when you watch that little one realize, those are my fingers at the end of my arm and I can use them to pick up Cheerios. And that's a challenge. And then in time, you put a utensil there and it's a great day when a child can actually feed himself or feed herself. But spiritually speaking, people are in process. And so some need to have their hands held or they may need a spiritual set of training wheels but we provide that for them. We who are strong, who've walked with the Lord and understand how some of these, how some of these things develop, we, we get that. And we take that responsibility. So these weak ones would be just like what in all likelihood were some of the Jewish believers at the church at Rome who really believed that maintaining some of the Old Testament dietary practices and some of the Old Testament feast days were important to their spiritual walk. They'd get there one day, they would say, you know what, it's really not a big deal. And the other believers would say, you're right, we're glad you finally caught up to us, but we were happy to bear with you. And we're happy to bear with spiritual toddlers because in their heart, they really do want to honor God. I've never encountered, and I hope I never do, a, a parent who yells at a little one because they didn't just, you know, come out of the womb running, fully coordinated. No, we cheer them on. They take those first steps and they fall down. We're still going, woohoo. We're not like, you idiot. Look around you. Do, you. do you see grandma falling down like that? Maybe we do, right? Is that what that little conversation is right there? No, we're, we're excited to watch them grow and develop, even though it alters our plans, it's inconvenient, it costs us time and attention and energy. We know that one day they're going to walk and run and function like adults. Some are weak because of past experiences. They've experienced some kind of difficult or even traumatic event in another church or maybe in their home. And that creates a fear and suspicion in their souls and they're reluctant to open up or they're re reluctant to take a chance. 
And who could blame them? Maybe they watched a church that they loved just completely fall apart. Maybe they had an abusive parent who made a, a big show of spirituality yet behind closed doors was an absolute tyrant. You just never know what may have created that spiritual weakness in an individual. And their conscience, as a consequence, has been weakened where they can't take some steps in faith, even though they may long to, uh, or, or one day we hope they will be at that point. But for now, they're not there. And so we don't despise them. But we remind ourselves that church, in many ways, is like a nursery. And there are always toddlers and weak ones that God is bringing to us. And we don't want to leave one another in a condition of spiritual infancy. Yet at the same time, we're never dismayed when new toddlers come in and we say, well, here we go again. The kind of love Christ calls us to exercise in this body is love that determines it will not put stumbling blocks or hindrances in the way of the little ones. Let's press on here. Uh, love is also on mission, according to this text. Will you go to verse 17 with me? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's where Paul's going to lift the conversation above the immediate issues and opinions. The kingdom of God, that is, as you think of Christ's dominion being exercised and worked out in our present setting, his kingdom is not about what we eat or what we drink in this life. Rather, it is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness means that you're living your life according to His perfect will and command. It calls us to live out the righteousness that He has graciously given to us through Christ. And His law, remember, can be summarized in two commands, right? Love God with all your heart. Love others as you love yourself. How easy is that? Easy to understand, challenging to do, but it is simple, isn't it? Righteousness and love go hand in hand. Peace. His kingdom is about peace. It is not only about having peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's about peace with one another. We don't need to be at war with one another. We've received everything that we need in, in Christ. And then finally, joy in the Holy Spirit. That is rejoicing and gladness that we find as we are in relationship with Him, united to Him as He works powerfully in us. And though our circumstances may be difficult and challenging, we recognize that we're not citizens of the here and now, we're citizens of heaven. And we have a bright future to come. And so that joy of the Holy Spirit, that spirit of rejoicing and gladness flows out of Him into us and then back out of us into our world. And, and Paul is saying, that's what the kingdom is about. So stop quarreling over these opinions as to what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what special days you're going to observe. And then he says, not only that love seeks the kingdom priorities of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, but we are people who pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Look at verse 19. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue is an active word. That, that means you get moving. You exert yourself. You may not be able to control what other people do, but you can determine to be a part of God's momentum of grace in your homes, in this church, in our community. 
So stop spending your time and energy being shocked and amazed uh, that even in a church there are problems between people and run after peace. Pursue it. And that may mean you have to talk through some things and say, can I just ask you something? I thought I heard you say, or I thought I observed, and that, I struggle with that. And, and so you clear the air, and if there's sin, then we confess it, we repent of it, we extend that forgiveness, which we'll come to uh, in, in the weeks ahead as we continue through this series uh, on the one and others, but we pursue peace. We pursue things that make for harmony. I want to pause for just a moment and ask, are you a person who's known as someone pursuing this peace and harmony, or are you known as one of those people who just kind of always stirs it up? I mean, are you that family member who shows up at the you know, Memorial Day picnic and puts everybody on edge? And some of you fancy yourself. It's going to be like, well, I, I think I'm gifted in this way. <laughs> well, I don't know who you think gifted you, but it wasn't God. Maybe I ought to repent of that and say, you know, I'm actually a source of irritation and frustration, and it, it makes other people nervous. You know, when I throw these discussion topics on the table and yeah, maybe you ought to rethink what you're pursuing. Peace, and then he says mutual upbuilding. That's just the act of building one another in the faith. Let's move quickly. Love pursues what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Love assumes the obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This is tough. That word obligation that you see, now we're in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation. He's using a term that actually conveys, we're, we're indebted in a spiritual way to the weak ones. Say, what? I, I didn't make them weak. No, you're right. Why are we indebted? Well, because we were the weak ones that Jesus served and adapted himself to and rescued so the debt is not directly to the weak one. It's actually to Christ. But they, the weak ones, even now around us, are the objects of his care and of his infinite love. And so he says you need to bear with them. That is, you, you carry them, whether in your arms or on your shoulders. Bearing with has the idea of supporting, coming underneath, and enduring. It's used to describe a mother who carries a child in her womb as child bearing. And we have an obligation to bear with the inconveniences. No, look at the text. What is the word? The failings. Ah. Spouses, parents, children. You start thinking of all your relationships and every one of them is marked by the other person's failing. And that failing has bearing on us, doesn't it? has the idea of carrying another person's weakness in the spiritual sense, in the same way that we would carry a physical burden. We help them, one author writes, by we help them get where they are going with what they have in their hand or heart. Instead of criticizing them, we encourage them in their desire to glorify and thank God for His provision and blessing. Instead of tearing them down with theological explanations for why they are wrong, we build them up in the Lord. Love assumes the obligation. And then, finally, love like Christ. 
love like Christ. And so we've come full circle. We looked at some of these things, so I'll just review it real quickly. First of all, love pleases his neighbor. Remember, that's not, we just don't want to upset that guy. No, that's, I adapt myself to that particular culture or that particular uh, way of, of life. The relationship of love passes through an understanding of the weakness of the other person. And then secondly, love builds him up. Again, Paul uses this terminology in verse 2, and, and we've already used the parenting analogy, so I won't review that, but just think of what good parents do with the weaknesses of their children. A physical weakness, they're going to provide the kind of exercise and activity, maybe the support of holding the child's hands while they learn to walk, and maybe the necessary props or supports that are going to aid them as they grow in strength. If a child has a spiritual weakness, what does a good parent do? Just say, oh, they'll grow out of it. no. They need help growing out of that. And so that's where the scriptures even speak to discipline of a child. We don't let children just throw tantrums without any consequences. But neither do we call the police the first time they do it. Hey, come get my kid. He's totally, you know, gone at this point. Well, two-year-olds do totally lose it. That's why God teaches us in places like Proverbs, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. And it's not talking about physical abuse. That is sin, that is criminal, that's a whole different category. But yet there is a, there is a form of discipline that brings uh, a, a remedial pain to bear upon the soul and sometimes the backside of the child that says sin always hurts. And so as your parent who loves you, I'm going to bring a small amount of pain to help you learn that lesson now to spare you from the really ugly pain of later. Can I just say to some of you young parents, there's a lot that's being said right now. We, we never spank our child. And I'm not saying that you should hit your child, but I am saying you need to wrestle with the terminology that God gives us in his word because it's given for your blessing and your child's. Well, I don't want to raise a violent child. Nobody does. But can I say that swinging to the other extreme where there's never any form of discipline that actually brings a bit of, of pain and correction to that child is going to open you to all kinds of heartache down the road. Just mark my word. So a good parent understands that physical weakness and spiritual weakness needs to be uh, helped and addressed. And spiritually speaking, we need to do the same thing. Just two more things quickly, and then we're done. Love lives in harmony with others. Uh, chapter 15, verse 5. Live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what stands in contra contrast ultimately to quarreling. And then verse 7, he wraps it all up again. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I want to conclude with just this thought and put a little visual image in front of you to consider that God is saying, stop quarreling with one another. That's sin and the attitudes that accompany that. But he's also, he's also calling us to more than just polite conversation over a table. The, the term harmony is what I want you to focus on for just a second. And what comes to your mind, I touched on this last week, but what comes to your mind often is something musical. And so I want to set before you the, the picture of a choir. A choir that comes together and with one conductor at the forefront and one, one set of music from which they are singing, they blend their voices. They're not all singing the same line, are they? 
And they don't have the same identical voice, but they all add their voices, and some will sing the melody line, and some will sing those beautiful harmonies, and they'll sing uh, soprano and alto and tenor and bass and maybe even work in a few other interesting uh, musical techniques, but it creates this beautiful experience for the listener that, that can be compelling. And God not only wants us to cease our quarreling, but he actually wants us to come together in Christ, uniting in him, even with some different opinions. And because Christ is central and not those peripheral opinions, others hear us singing, as it were, in this beautiful, united voice. Christ is at the center. We are united to him personally and eternally. And there is an actual spiritual harmony that flows out of our relationship that is compelling to the world we're trying to reach. So as we think this through, first of all, I want you to ask this question. What are some opinions and preferences that I presently am unwilling or reluctant to move on? Are there any? Probably there are. Can you be honest right now? And you need to think along these lines. How do these keep you from welcoming other believers into your heart? Well, I could just never worship with a Democrat. Sorry to those of you who may be that, but they're, I mean, we sometimes think like this, right? Well, I could just never be in a church where somebody expressed their faith and love for God in, and then you fill in the blank. Is it really something God has said that should actually keep you apart, or is that actually just an opinion that you could gladly lay down for the sake of Christ and open your heart and your arms to the other person and welcome them? Now, an even bigger issue, how do these keep you from maximum gospel effectiveness? We haven't been able to fully explore this, but do you realize that if you're unwilling to adapt yourself to a particular culture or even group of people that God may be calling to you, you're gonna miss the opportunity to evangelize them? And the principal example of that from the New Testament would be in the book of Acts where Peter, a good Jewish man, is trying to practice some of those laws. And remember, the Lord lets down that sheet with all these unclean animals from Peter's perspective and says to Peter, eat. And it's not only about the food, it's about a Gentile who's going to knock on his door and say, can you tell me about Jesus? Is it possible you're missing the opportunity to evangelize somebody who's lost right now because you're unwilling to step out of what you've known and felt comfortable with for so many years? Welcoming one another is a big, big deal. Second question, are you involved in any ongoing quarrels? Are you? What lies at the root of that quarrel? Is it just like James describes? You want what you want, and so you're willing to war over what you want. Is it a matter of opinion? You can hold that opinion, but you can't despise another person. You can hold your opinion, but you can't pass judgment on the spirituality of another person. And rather than quarreling, how can you adapt yourself to the opinion of that other person? There's a challenging one. Third big question, are there any people that you presently despise or pass judgment upon? Well, if that's true, then God's calling you, first of all, to repent, to say to him, I have sinned against you and these other individuals. Please forgive me. And then he calls you to proactively love them. It's tough, but that's where rich blessing awaits. Finally, how strong and clear is Gospel Hope Church's one voice for Jesus Christ? 
In some ways, we're still so new at this, it's hard to determine, isn't it? But you know what, if we commit ourselves on a day like this, as we've looked at the word together, saying, you know what, Lord, we want to have that kind of one voice. We want it to be clear. We want it to be powerful. We want it to be beautiful in this community. If we consecrate ourselves to that, I'm confident that by his grace and by the the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he will cause it to happen. But mark this. Now that I've preached this, we're gonna have to live it. And that means that probably in the next few days, some of you are gonna be at odds with somebody else that's real near you right now. Really? Yeah, sorry. I've experienced this before. I've preached this in other settings and other places, and it's almost like now that it's out there, we, we're really going to have to live it. And so God in his kindness goes, okay, let's see how you do with this. Ugh. Danny, you should have preached something else. Maybe. But it's out. So, when you're tempted to be at odds with somebody, We've got the gospel tools right here. We've experienced the love of Christ where he's welcomed us. We've heard his word that says, listen, welcome one another, but not so you can quarrel. Repent of these attitudes. Actively love one another in this way. Clear the path so the, so the toddlers in your midst can just walk in faith and joy, grow to maturity. Let's do this. That's really what the Lord is saying, right? So let's commit ourselves as a church to living with Christ at the center and with one voice living in harmony for his glory and for the growth of his testimony. Let's pray together. Father, this is challenging for us, but we, we retreat to that sweet place of the love of Christ. When we were still weak because of our sin, Christ died for us. When we were far away from you, Christ entered the world that by his life and death and by his resurrection, he might bring us back. When we were your enemies, You saved us. Oh, how I pray that this powerful good news of the love of Jesus Christ for us would transform us. We recognize, Lord, that there are existing quarrels and there will be opportunities to quarrel in the future, but oh, how we pray that you would exert the truth and grace of this word in our souls and cause us to humble ourselves under your hand and to love one another proactively. And we ask that in going into the the days that lie ahead, that Gospel Hope Church would be known for this kind of gospel harmony. That people would see, those are people of different opinions, yet look how they love each other. People of different backgrounds, but there's something unique Oh, Lord God, let it be the love of Christ that distinguishes us. And may all who are seeking a place of rest, a place of shelter for their souls, a place of acceptance, a place of genuine love, let them find it here. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.